Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. There were some safe spaces. There were some friends. My mom, when she wasn't drinking, wasn't abusive of me. And the resilience literature, incidentally, is born of study, originally, of study of long-term studies of kids who grew up as street people. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a large percentage of them ended up being fine, upstanding citizens. But they mm-hmm. needed someone to believe in them. They needed some uh, group. They needed a safe space someplace. So yeah. you enter adolescence, and then what happens? Well, so I, I was, uh, you know, arrested constantly for stealing cars, breaking into places, you know, just basically all out mayhem whenever I could engage in it. And, you know, 20, uh, 24 arrests and five stints in reform schools. And, uh, and, you know, the safe places that you talk about were other kids' homes, uh, ironically. Huh. I mean, I'd go over there and the parents typically liked me, even, the, even though they knew that it's probably not in their child's best interest to have me around. Hi, I'm Dr. Wayne Sotil. I'm honored today to be a guest interviewer on the Resilient Surgeon podcast. We'll be flipping the script today as a way of discussing the real world coping strategies and personal stories and experiences of top performers. I have the honor of interviewing a real high performer, your host typically in this series, Dr. Michael Mattis. The more I've learned about Michael, the more impressed I've become that his is indeed a story of resilience. Born in Minneapolis in 1954 to a distressed family, Michael had a childhood filled with challenges. His childhood included 24 arrests, five stints in reform school, and dropping out of high school. As you hear in our far-ranging conversation, he righted his course, joined the military, and then went into medical training. He completed medical school and surgical residency at the University of Minnesota, finished thoracic surgery residency at the University of Toronto. Then from 1992 to 2012, Michael served as a faculty member at the University of Minnesota. There, he was a professor and endowed chair and surgery program director, and he established his own thoracic division in the Department of Surgery. Proving that resilience is a journey not a destination, Michael's story continued. After five lumbar fusion and hip replacement surgeries, he became addicted to pain meds, entered Hazleton in 2012, and got sober. Michael is now retired from academic medicine, but he has become a beacon of learning and teaching about personal and professional resilience. In fact, Michael's Seminole Resilience Bank Account model informs much of the content of this podcast series. I'm proud to call Michael a colleague and a new friend, and I'm delighted to interview him today. It is a real pleasure to uh, be here with you. 
uh, in an honor to get to uh, interview. I've studied resilience for four plus decades and um, am always fascinated by resilience stories that make the point that there's a big difference between being tough, having grit, going numb, keep on going on the one hand, that's stuff that all you surgeons learn to do so well, and true resilience on the other hand, getting through difficult times and coming out stronger and better as an individual, as a person, as a professional, um, as a family or as a couple, if you have a family, everybody has a family, uh, or in your family life. So I am really interested, I, I know you offline some, but your story epitomizes both grit, the old Michael, and resilience, uh, the, the Michael that I know. Would you please, let's begin by telling us your story. Well, um, well I, I grew up in Minneapolis and uh, my mother uh, in 1954, quite a while ago, had me. And you had a picture, 1954, my mother's single. She had an affair uh, with a married man that had three kids. Uh, she had been divorced before because they had a child that was uh, severely mentally handicapped. And so 1954, she's pregnant uh, with an illegitimate child and a single female, a waitress. Uh, and she had that affair. And then I'm born. So, you know, it's a different world than it is today. And it was a world, I think, filled with a lot of shame uh, around, you know, being a single mother and all that. Sure. And so I, I only offer that as kind of a, a, a way to have some compassion for her, which it took me a long time to have compassion for her because of the way the story unfolded in our lives. But essentially, I mean, we lived with uh, my grandmother, her mother, until I was 10. Then she died of uh, cervical cancer. And after that, it was just mom and me. And we lived in apartments and there was no evidence of any alcoholism or other problems. And I think that she was a fairly loving uh, person towards me. I, I have no bad memories around her until later in my early teenage years. And then a man came into our life who was a Navy, a retired Navy cook all of a sudden. And after grandma died, you know, there were several men and some kind of weird things going on, but then he came in and they got married. And, and of course, being fatherless, I was so excited, you know, to have a father uh, because that was such a hole in my life. And it was great in the beginning, but then it started to deteriorate. And my mother quit working and started drinking. Uh, I suspect she already did drink quite a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, but we entered a situation where he's a functioning, functioning alcoholic and he goes to work and mom stays home and uh, the drinking escalates. She ends up bedridden. Uh, you know, stooling in the bed, not eating, losing all her weight, her dentures don't fit. And it's a nightmare. And then we drag her off to the hospital to dry out. There was no treatment that I was aware of at the time. Uh, and she'd come back home and I'd have mom back for a few months. Uh, and then the relapse would inevitably occur. And we just go through that same cycle, Jesus. wash and spin, you know, and that went on until she died when I was about 24 years old. So let so me as, stop there. Yeah. So thus far, you've had the typical all-American family experience, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's just, oh, it ain't, leave it to Beaver. Beaver, leave it to Beaver. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, how did you, let's start right there. How, what sustained you? How did you not go nuts? How, how, what got you through that? Well, honestly, it was my friends. 
the community that I created, you know, totally fortuitously outside of, of my family. I, I didn't want to be there. It was a hellhole. You know, I mean, my mother tried to commit suicide twice. You know, I mean, really horrific, uh, you know, adverse childhood events. And so I just ended up hanging out with my friends and finding friends at school that were in similar sorts of circumstances, not as dramatic as mine, but challenged, you know, home lives. And I, you know, I just hung out with them all the time. And I basically left home at 13 other than just to sleep and get food there. And so that, that was the place on the streets with my friends. What? So, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be uh, making light of your experience. Oh, no, I admire no, the hell out of you for yeah. going through what you go through. But one thing that dawns on me, having studied the psychology of physicians for 100 years, uh, what would that kind of childhood experience prepare a person to do successfully? The answer, become a physician, specifically a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that kind of obviously. Thing. It's obvious, right? It's obvious. <laughs> it's <laughs> obvious. Yeah. At least they don't shoot at you every day, literally in the hospital with a, a gun. They shoot at you yeah. 19 other different ways, right? Yeah. So your friends uh, sustained you. And obviously, you you had some internal grit, we could call it that. You, you're brilliant. You're strong uh, inherently. Uh, the other thing you keep, you hinted at is, there were some safe spaces. There were some friends. My mom, when she wasn't drinking, wasn't abusive of me. In the resilience literature, incidentally, is born of study originally of study of long-term studies of kids who grew up as street people. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a large percentage of them ended up being fine, upstanding citizens. But they mm-hmm. needed someone to believe in them. They needed some uh, group. They needed a safe space someplace. So yeah. you enter adolescence, and then what happens? Well, so I I was, uh, you know, arrested constantly for stealing cars, breaking into places, you know, just basically all out mayhem whenever I could engage in it. And, you know, 20, uh, 24 arrests and five stints in reform schools. And, uh, and, you know, the safe places that you talk about were other kids' homes, uh, ironically. I mean, I'd go over there and I'd, I'd, the, the parents typically liked me, even the, even though they knew that it's probably not in their child's best interest to have me around <laughs> that is really fascinating again literally really if you study the the pediatric resilience literature is where all this is housed some the kids who uh were the street calcutta street people who were charming who were engaging who had yeah, the capacity uh-huh. to speak to adults were the ones that formed alliances and got through so it's a, it's a real is it a developed skill <laughs> some Physicians we work with, as we both know, are not great at that inherently, but can certainly learn to broaden and deepen emotional intelligence. So that was a survival avenue for you, those kinds of connections with those people. For sure. For sure. I I have strong memories of some, you know, really fond uh, connections that I had with older adults uh, as a teenager. And I know Ann Mastin pointed that out to me, that that's a that's a big deal. What have you... uh, Looking back on it, what did you learn through those multiple stints and reform schools and arrests and those dark side years that served you well in your life? Well, I suspect one is I, I grew to be very comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, huh. uh, extremely uh, used to that. Uh, and 
and I, I learned how to adapt. I mean, shockingly well. I mean, these environments that I was in, the various reform schools and the significant challenges that they posed. I mean, I was a scrawny little uh, kid, uh, you know, and I didn't know how to fight like a, an animal. And, and I mean, there were some tough people in there and I had to learn how to adapt and get along and, and do okay in those environments. So there, I, I, it's hard for me to say, but I suspect a lot of it is just being able to adapt and, and connect and work with a lot of different people from a lot of different angles that served me extremely well in those environments. That's fascinating. So um, keep going. The, I was one of the rules I would say you internalized no matter what, uh, from a real early age, there's always another chapter. There are some safe spaces. Mm -hmm. Connect with friends. Those are important. Uh, learn to adapt. All these are great uh, tools for building a, re a resilience uh, right. skill set or toolkit, yeah. needless to say. And um, learn to be uncomfortable. Uh, being be, Learn to be comfortable uh, with being uncomfortable. Much, much later, incidentally, as a surgeon, you learn to be comfortable making other people uncomfortable. Right? <laughs> yes, that's for sure. <laughs> it was a signature style. Point. We'll, yes. <laughs> I know that that's true because I read your 360. You so kindly shared with me. <laughs> we'll get to that one. His capacity for being uncomfortable, making me uncomfortable, far surpasses my capacity for being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> How many physicians can say that? So, uh, so. Keep going, please. So then, uh, you know, the, the last time I got arrested, I was going to be tried, excuse me, tried as an adult. And, uh, and my, I, I was given an option to, you know, join the Navy uh, and, and leave Dodge. And so I dropped out of high school, joined the Navy. And, uh, you know, basically that was a, a, another uh, stint with um, a, a new set of friends that were carrying on just like I was. It was during the Vietnam War. I was on an aircraft carrier with a, 50 some guys in a box and they were all high school dropouts and just the same kind of characters. But I managed to get through the Navy. Uh, I got into trouble a number of times, but I managed to get through it. Okay. Barely by the skin of my, you know, skinny shin shins or whatever it is. <laughs> and I, and I got out with an honorable discharge. And after, uh, you know, it was really the epiphany was on the back of the carrier one night we're out at sea and I'm smoking a joint and I'm thinking, you know, I, well, I was chipping paint and doing crap like that in the Navy. And I thought, damn, I hate chip and paint. I hate this manual labor. Uh, and I don't want to go to prison. I'm a skinny little kid. I wouldn't do well in prison. And uh, so it seemed to me that the only other third option was to go to school. So I got determined when I got out of the Navy, I was going to get my GED and go to school. And that's what I did. I got my GED. I enrolled in a junior college for the first year and then did okay enough to get into the general college at the University of Minnesota. And then took some vocational interest tests, which gave me the direction that I needed for my career and ended up just working my ass off and doing extremely well and getting into medical school. So that's a highly- now, Let me back up for a moment because there's a compelling other part of your story related to the concept. Everybody needs somebody to believe in them. Even before you believe in yourself fully, you had a real mentor that helped you, right? Yeah. Well, there were, there were, a few. And I got to tell you about one small story. And there's a, there's a Ted talk called lolly. I think it's called lollipop moments. Um, and it's, it's the profound influence you can have on somebody by simple, one simple statement of affirmation. 
<laughs> so when I got out of the Navy and I got my GED, I was thinking about ways I could support myself. And I thought, well, I'll go learn to weld. All right. And so I was at a welding school and it was in a terrible place, but I, I was, I, I was in the process of applying for my GED and I had to write a letter to get my permission to take the test. And the lady that worked there was a black woman in the office of this, you know, welding school. And I showed her my letter and, you know, this was like the most indifferent place on the planet. And I showed her my letter and she looked at the letter and read it. And she looked up at me and she says, my gosh, you can write well. Now <laughs> that, that may not sound like much, but for me, where I had been told continuously that I was, I was stupid I mean, at school, I mean, I, I had it so internalized that I was incompetent, you know, stupid and never going to amount to anything. And that woman literally gave me such yeah. a boost in my life. And then fortuitously, I was working and delivering furniture and I met this pediatric surgeon uh, who for, again, these peculiar reasons kind of took me under his wing. And he, I, you know, he was just fabulous. He just had me out to his house. He let me play with his kids and I kind of became part of their family in a way. And, uh, and he's the one that suggested I take some vocational interest tests and that said I should be a doctor. And uh, with that was it. Okay, well, I'll be a doctor. Well, okay, let great. me, let me uh, insert for all those prurient minds out there. <laughs> peculiar reasons were, did not mean cold for perverted reasons. This guy just took a, he had kids and he took a liking to you and believed in you, right? Oh yeah. I, I remember yeah, but, hearing your story. Right. And the way it evolved was they had built a big new house and we were doing all this custom furniture installation. And so I was over there a lot, putting things in and installing things. And just, you know, I have a tendency to strike up conversations with people. And I, even at that age, and, you know, it just, the relationship just started slowly. That's awesome. So you went to medical school, how in residence, what was that like? What was that like? Well, medical school for me was, was not that hard, uh, but it was a challenge from the standpoint of believing in myself. You know, ironically, even though I was accepted, um, I just felt like I was an alien in the class, sure. you know, because most kids came from, you know, your typical sort of background. And uh, it wasn't really until I was in the, about the third, second, third year of my surgical residency where I was like, I got this. I'm, I, I do belong here. I'm fully, you know. I'm fully on board with this thing. Uh, it took a long time to get to that place, though. In it, I don't know you discovered this in the uh, work you've done uh, supporting other physicians, but it's the best-known secret of high-performing people. We all feel like imposters. Yes, right? I'm, I'm the yeah. dumbest one in the class. Yeah. I don't know why I graduated at this rank, but they're going to discover me sooner or later. I'm yeah. going through this right now with a with a uh, an executive. I was the dumbest one in physician in medical school. Oh, yeah, I graduated top 5%. I was the dumbest one in residency. Yeah, well, I was the chief. Right. You know, he's named one of the top executives in the country, but I'm the dumbest one in that list. That's right. That's right. No, I know. <laughs> it doesn't That's come true. from outside. It's got to come from inside. Now, let me catch up something in your story. At this stage, you're doing uh, residency, let's say, What's happening in your personal life? Are you married? Do you have kids? Are, yeah. are, you, are you taking care of yourself? What? So, you know, the thing that really triggered a massive change in me was a, a major car accident. So uh, I worked for a year as a janitor after getting out of the Navy uh, to earn money. I, I left the welding profession <laughs> and then I was vacuuming carpets, uh, you know, 530 at night to 130. 
And then I would go to junior college during the day. And at the end of that year, I had saved up enough money between the GI Bill and that job to buy a car. And I bought a used car and I went downtown to party and celebrate. I got a new car and I promptly drove it into a cement pole drunk and high on marijuana. And that triggered, that was it. That was the last time done with all that stuff. But the point is I started working out then. I went to the old YMCA downtown and I started exercising, which became a lifelong obsession of mine. Hmm. aerobic uh, exercise and, and lifting weights. And so that became an integral part of my sort of, uh, you know, coping uh, mechanism, a uh, huge deal for me. And even during residency, I mean, no matter how much or how little sleep I had, I always went to the gym and go ahead. So that became a healthy pleasure for you. Did you stop doing substances then? Yeah. Yeah. That, the, the car accident, it literally erased that, you know, I, I haven't been drunk since that time. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I quit everything. So, you know, like the, all these things, these kinds of changes, as you know, are really difficult oh, and time you intensive, right. you know, I mean, it's such a major shift, but it just kind of went in stages, you know, as, sure. as time evolved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, it is, it is, excuse me one second, my, it, it's, it's an important point that your story tells, uh, change my appear to be abrupt. One day people, a person stops smoking, or a person uh, starts exercising, or a person stops having temper tantrums. But there there have been umpteen attempts or, or, or considerations of making that change early. At some point, the, the thing blossoms, and then you make right. the change. Yeah. But it's never easy. And, it's, it's, and you've got to build the right set of support mechanisms to to pick you back up uh, when you lapse, uh, you know, for you, you skip a workout or I'm feeling yeah. lousy and I'm getting into old stories or old patterns. Um, but that, but a lot of times there is a turning point experience uh, like smashing your car into that thing or getting arrested one more time or uh, one of my children telling me whatever, or my spouse saying whatever that becomes, my God, what am I doing? I need to make a change. And that's right. the beginning of a resilience journey for a lot of folks. Yeah, yeah. But if you will continue telling us your story. Well, as you were asking about uh, personal life. And I, I met uh, my first wife, Linda, at a, you know, in college uh, at the university. And then we ended up with three children. And, and then we uh, got divorced. Uh, I think it was about the middle of residency. Um, and so, you know, that was a very difficult time. Um, and, uh, had the three kids and then ultimately sure. met my wife, Leanne, who's we're married uh, to this day. And we have three more children. So I've got six kids in total, you know, over this time. And you're sober for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's some days. <laughs> some days. And grandchildren, some days. right? Don't you, have, you got grandchildren yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Seven. How many them. grandkids do you have? Seven. Seven grandkids. That's great. Good for you, man. Yeah. So you got through residency, then what? Tell us about your tell us about your your career journey. Well, so residency, you know, it was it was horrific, but it was also fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I trained with John Nigerian at Minnesota. It was the mecca of transplantation, and despite being the mecca, I mean, the transplant service was so brutal and and just awful uh, that I never had an interest in transplantation because of the experience. But it was, you know, that. I mean, for me, the residency was, it was a thing that utterly defined what I was capable of. 
And so, you know, I, I, I have somewhat, you know, rose colored glasses to some extent. I can put them on whenever I want about the residency and I can remember such great times. And there was a lot of camaraderie and, you know, connection with people. We're all going through the same sort of hell and there's something good about that. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it was really magical, but there was just a lot of suffering, uh, you know, going along with it. But, you know, uh, I learned what I was capable of and that's an experience that I, I wouldn't trade for anything. I don't know if I needed 10 years of it, you know, to get to that point. Right. Uh, but it, but it really taught me that I had far more reserves than I could have ever imagined. Uh, and then I, you know, graduated there and I went to the University of Toronto uh, and trained in general thoracic surgery and then came back to the University of Minnesota in 1992. And I came back to Minnesota primarily because I had three kids here. <clears throat> and so I just, you know, the two years apart from them was just too difficult. So that was really the driver for my decision, <clears throat> excuse me, to come back to Minnesota. Can you talk some about, we, we talked about the context of your early life and uh, you're great at meta-processing uh, the context of, uh, I'm in reform school and I'm, I learned to be uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable, uh, the context of the Navy. And then you find yourself working in academic medicine. What did the context of academic medicine as it was, now where are we in the calendar now from what years to what years? Uh, from 1973 after getting out of the Navy and stuff to 92 to 92 in when I became faculty. What did that mill you? Because I, I'm very interested in, in, you know, the concept of physician resilience, but I'm also interested in when physicians are abused, whether it's from a, resi a residency or, or medical school, what happens, you know, if I'm working in a hospital, that's the nursing mafia in, you know, if you raise your eyebrow, you get written up or the frustrations that come with inefficiencies. What did, what happened to your mind, body, spiritual health working uh, in academic medicine? Now, are you talking about as faculty or resident? It is faculty or you are, you can start at residency if you want either one. You know, well, yeah, let's start at residency. What did residency do to you, mind, body, spiritual, health-wise? Well, I, I like to, I've, you know, I've because I've done a lot of personal interrogation um, around this issue, you know, um, and I view residency have, as having instilled four, you know, habits in me. Uh, one is say yes to everything. Uh, the second one is, you know, discipline. It requires enormous discipline to get through that. And that's a skill. And I value that skill immensely. The other one is you got to be strong no matter what. Uh, and I, I just so remember uh, getting divorced. And I, I mean, I was really, I mean, I, I don't know that I was clinically depressed, but I sure as hell was situationally depressed. And it was really yeah. a rough time. And I felt so ashamed about it. And, and you know, there was no one to talk to. And so I had to come in and just put on my game face every day. And I mean, I'd find myself sitting in the car sometimes just alone, you know, just feeling like, my God, how am I going to get through this hell? Sure. You know, and, and there's nobody to talk to about it, you know, for a multitude of reasons. And then, of course, you know, this gets right at the, you know, the other habit, and that's, you know, self-sufficiency. I, I mean, this notion that I can do and manage everything on my own and, you know, certainly residency inculcates you with all of those things. And so it leads to emotional isolation uh, and, and a sense that, you know, you've just got to cope with every damn thing on your own. And the only response right. you've got is to be, you know, disciplined and strong. And, and that becomes the operating system 
that you begin to apply to every damn aspect of your life. At least that was well, my yeah. experience. It, Chip Campbell uh, from University of Michigan studied resilience, burnout in surgeons. And he has a quote I've used for decades. Classical medical training teaches you well how to practice medicine. It doesn't teach you well how to live your life as a physician. Yeah. But it teaches you some good stuff. I mean, those four uh, skills serve you well if you can just turn them off every now and then and do so, you know, it, it don't apply them across the board. Well, I just want to comment on that because this is so critical. And it, the, the, the problem that I got into is, okay, now I'm faculty. I've done extremely well in the residencies, you know, really great. And then now in faculty, things are going well. I mean, I'm making good money. I've got all this stuff. I become, I get promoted, blah, 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 endowed chair. So the, the materials that I was given for my operating system were, I mean, by all metrics of the outside, you know, world, I'm, these babies are working, you know, the discipline, the self-sufficiency, all that stuff, it's working. So why would I think that there's something else that's needed? I, I wasn't right. aware. Right. Right. You know, it's, I, it's I, I, I call that uh, success superstition because I did A, B and C. I did A, B and C. Now I'm successful. It right. must mean I've got to keep doing A, B and C for the rest of my life or I'm not going to be successful in, in that's whatever. The yeah, in, in whatever. Right. In whatever. And of course, no matter what A, B and C are, no matter what your coping strategies are, you're going to reach a point of diminishing returns in their adaptive values. One of the resilience lessons. And so you were experiencing, you're kicking it, you're successful, you're strong, you're disciplined, you're relatively isolated, but you've got family happening. Uh, then what happened? Well, there was a slow downward spiral. Uh, and I, it was so hard for me to even put my finger on it. And, you know, my wife is a high-risk obstetrician, Leanne, and she, you know, <laughs> You know, she's working her tail off, you know, in-house call five nights a, a month and, you know, going to work the next day after call, same, same drill and the same kind of inculcation of that, of those habits into her. And, you know, these, these kinds of, uh, you know, relationships built on, on that kind of heavy striving and pushing and, you know, fast pace, they, they don't necessarily lead to a lot of intimacy, you know, right. I mean, real intimacy. And so there's that piece. And, and then the, the, the slow creep of, of what I would call just chronic low-grade malaise. Um, and, you know, I, I, was I burned out? I suppose. I, I don't know. I mean, I just know that I didn't want to go to the operating room anymore. I was sick of all the committee meetings. And I, I just was beginning to hate what I was doing. I mean, really mm -hmm. dislike what I was doing. And it was, was at the pinnacle of my career. You know, I mean, I was, everything was like going gangbusters. Yeah. I've done this. I've done that. I've got this. I've got that. Why am I not happier is the most frequent uh, private question in coaching and counseling sessions physicians have brought to us over the decades. Yeah. You know, I, I've got this malaise, you know, and it makes a point going from minus five into a misery scale to zero I'm no longer, nobody's beating me to death anymore. I'm not in residency. It's not the same as plus, plus five, feeling great. And, you know, I want to, I no, want to have right. more energy. I want to be, have more thriving. So, so continue with your story, if you will. Uh, well, Mike, so what the, happened then? For yeah, you the problem that that presented, I'm sorry. The problem that presented for me was, 
I didn't understand what was wrong. And I thought I was just being weak, you know? And so the usual <laughs> going back strategy, to the four rules, right? Yeah. And the usual strategies, I mean, I kept trying to apply them and, you know, it just didn't make a difference, you know? So the, the old strategies were failing me and I didn't get it. And then, uh, you know, I'd had back troubles uh, for a long time and I started having very severe, ridiculous leg pain. And I, one day I, and I, my running was starting to be limited. And one day I just was in so much pain. I couldn't run anymore. I knew I was done running. And that was really a, a, a major blow because that was the one thing my exercise, sure. you know, kept me going. Sure. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I tried to adapt to that, but then, you know, I, I started looking at solutions for my back troubles. turns out I had very severe five level lumbar disc disease and degeneration, you know, shockingly bad. And I decided as, is typical of surgeons to, you know, cause everything, you're going to fix everything. So I went out and found the best, you know, spine surgeon and went out and had a five level lumbar fusion at Cedar Sinai in, in California. And, and that was just as medieval as any surgery can get in terms of pain and suffering. But I got through it, got off the narcotics and got back to work about eight weeks later, of course, you know, I muscled my way through that. I mean, you know, barely walking in the door of the hospital. But then I started having trouble with my hips and I walk out of the OR and I can hardly walk. I mean, I was in so much pain and I had no idea that both hips were bone on bone. And wow. so I uh, got x-rays and then I called, of course, cause you know, you know, everybody, I called a pain guy there. He injected them. It didn't help. And then he wrote me a prescription for 360 Norco tabs, which is, you know, a narcotic. And the first prescription was for 360 tablets. Didn't even have to go to clinic. And so that just began an 18 month, uh, slow descent into hell. Uh, for mm -hmm. Okay, buddy, hold on. I want to make a process comment. If you don't mind mm -hmm. what happened when you couldn't exercise, I, this is another concept I think is worth underscoring in terms of uh, the message of our, all of our, our work, you surgeons live in a, you, you surgeons have normalized deviancy in a whole bunch of ways from a virus, psychosocial, <laughs> spiritual standpoint. And I say it with admiration. Yeah, I get I get about as much sleep as I've always gotten. I sleep yeah, yeah. as much as my colleagues. All of them, you're sleep deprived, for God's sake, right? Yeah. Uh, but one, you live in a very, very delicate, a biopsychosocial balance. You really do. Evidence being one night on call that's not so bad you have more, a whole bunch more energy, you know, one night of five more calls tanks me or one more night of call a week compared to not. Uh, and, and so a related tale and people tell me these things shyly. I, I was working with a doc who got mandated to see me for being, you know, for charm school. Cause he was misbehaving at work. And his secret was this. He had gotten uh, taken a job as a medical director of something, something, and it required 7 a.m. meetings. And those meetings knocked him out of yoga. He had started yoga two times a month, mindfulness-based meditation yoga class. He didn't want anybody to know because he didn't want anybody to think he was wimping out. Yeah. But boy, they just made a difference for him over the prior three years. This medical directorship, knocked him out of his yoga class and he just went on a downward spiral because he didn't yeah. substitute a more, another healthy pleasure for it. Right. So sometimes it's dramatic. Your hips blow, you're, 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 you got spine surgery and you can no longer do the healthy pleasure that you had substituted uh, instead of, you know, getting stoned and, and getting drunk. But I would, I would say 
as a cautionary tale to our listeners, beware of your own very delicate balance and be realistic when you're in, uh, in green light, yellow light, or red light territory about, you know, uh, uh, I'm rocking and rolling, doing fine, all my uh, ingredients are in the pot for my resilience versus if I'm, if I'm missing some. You know, Wayne, that's such an important point. And, you know, I can, I can just imagine the thousands of times. So this, this is the eternal dilemma that I struggle with. Because, you know, there's no question that discipline and forging through things, you know, kind of no matter what, it's, you know, that's just the way life is. You got to do that. You know, yeah. there's just, you just got to do those things. On the other hand, as we've talked about, you know, too much of that is no good. And, and then how do you come for me, it was, how do I come to recognize, dang it, you know, I'm, I'm struggling here and I really need to take care of myself. Well, buddy, you and I, you and I both know we're both great fans of, of self-compassion yeah. and uh, you know, Brene Brown's work growth only happens at the point of vulnerability and, and Kristen Neff's work that, that we've got to treat ourselves with the same kind of interest in kindness and forgiveness that we give to others. I first stumbled upon it working with heart patients because as the director of psychological services for cardiac rehab programs at Wake Forest and Atrium and the importance of exercise for cardiovascular fitness. But some wise people posed years ago for type A driven job involved schedule is full. What's better for your heart to go jog another four miles or to sit at table with your loved ones tonight? Uh-huh you know, to jog another four miles after working 10, 12 hours or to say, what the hell, I'm just going to go love my people that I love. Yeah. I mean, we got to find that balance, but it requires courage because it makes us uncomfortable to take care of ourselves in those yeah, ways. It sure does. So you got the narc stuff in uh, fighting the pain syndrome. What happened then? Because this is a crucial part of your story. Well, so, I mean, you know, the narcotics, uh, you know, they were a lovely band-aid for all that was ailing me at the time. And, uh, you know, for those who have not taken narcotics before, I mean, you, you take two uh, in a, a night and then, you know, by night 10, you know, the, the two don't work anymore. So then you take three and eventually it just spirals up, you know. And mm-hmm. so I ended up, uh, my partner who knew that I was struggling with it and he went to the chair and told him and it was, uh, thank God he did. And, uh, you know, I was asked to leave work. And so I left work that day. It was obviously a, a dark day of my life. Uh, I hadn't done anything with patients or problems, but, uh, you know, there, I was clearly not, I was impaired and, you know, it was not appropriate that I was uh, working. And so then I eventually, a couple of weeks after that, went to Hazelden and spent three months there. Uh, and uh, that, was, that was the first time in my life where I'd ever gotten off the treadmill. And wow. had a careful, uh, you know, careful look at my existence because for me, uh, to to have succumbed to pills and had that control me like the way they did was simply unimaginable. And yeah. you know, I, I mean, to say I tried to quit, it, it's just such a grotesque understatement. I mean, it just had me in the in a grip of of. The likes of which I'd never experienced. So I, you know, got up to Hazelden and I, I was so stunned by what I considered to be that failure on my part that I just really had to, you know, work hard to figure out how to, what the hell happened to me and why did this happen? Wow, buddy. I admire you for um, 
first of all, your honesty. And uh, yeah, I've told you this before. Uh, I've learned to appreciate that someone who goes through substance recovery, it's like you wake up having fallen to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and then you got to climb your way out to get back to level ground, which takes phenomenal motivation and courage and stamina. Some of those lessons you learned in, in mm-hmm. uh, residency that, that served you well to get through hard times that ultimately, you know, didn't serve you so well, but they came in handy to keep, get back to level ground. Yeah. Right. And then you got to have the courage it takes to be vulnerable, make amends, work the program. I mean, I've never done anything that hard in my life. And I say that uh, uh, sincerely. So I, kudos to you. I'm interested okay. in this, Mike. When people are vulnerable, typically, we are surprised and forever touched by the support that some folks, sometimes from surprising sectors, offer us. And we're hurt beyond description by some others who turn their back in silence when we're vulnerable. Can you speak to how did your colleagues respond to you going into recovery? That's a rough, kind of a rough topic for me because, but I think it's important to bring up because I, I think this problem is somewhat pervasive in medicine. And, you know, if I had had cancer or some other diagnosis, the flowers, the calls, you know, they would have been, I would have been inundated right you know, with concern instead i was at hazelden uh you know the the lawyers and everybody instructed that uh, no one was to reach out to me or talk to me uh from the institution and so i had no contact with anybody for three months i had no idea what was going on and you know uh, the the you know the, the the logistics of my career is one thing but you know the people in that i worked with i i had dedicated myself with like total full-on commitment to the university and uh you know that was my i used to come in and think this is kind of like my family my second family the people yeah. i worked with i really i loved many people there and it was uh hard beyond comprehension to feel that sort of abandonment now having said that i'm really not carping about that per se i mean because i recognize the challenges of you know somebody that's you know under the throes of addiction and you know the obligation to society and patients and all that stuff, uh, but there's there's a, human, a humanitarian element of this too, and especially in the world of medicine, that I just thought was lacking there. And it wasn't the individuals; it was more of an institutional response. There yeah. were some individuals who played a role in you know fostering that shutdown, but it all it all led to a staggering level of shame for me. Right. In silence, you know, I, listen, it doesn't have to be substance recovery. It could be a medical mistake. It could be being named in a medical malpractice suit. It could be going through a divorce. It could be yeah. uh, going through yeah. depression. The, the things human beings experience, particularly human beings working in a high-risk profession. Here's the punchline as a respectful observer outside. You treat each other like crap. And that's one of the dis- – you, the you being – surgeons particularly we've institutional we've normalized deviancy we look the other way when one of us falters as opposed to we rally around a fallen uh, colleague um so thank you thank you for sharing that what happened post hazelton in your journey mike well so you know things 
the structure of my division and all that changed at work. And, but for me, the biggest thing was like, I, I had to seriously question, did I want to go back? Could I go back? I still need another hip replacement. And wow. I, was, I was actually afraid of myself going back, that I would get drawn into doing all these things that I would have to do that I really didn't want to do. There was a lot of stuff that I was doing, the say yes habit that right. I had, I didn't have a bit of an interest in doing, right. you know, and some of that you got to do as part of the career, of course, in any career. Right. But I certainly said yes to way more than I ever needed to, because I felt so much a, a belief in the system and doing things to promote it. But I was just, uh, I was really wrong in, in not setting up tighter boundaries around, my, around myself and my time and, and where my energies went. So it was frightening. The other thing, the, the deep psychological part of that for me and for a lot of folks I work with is I have a debt of gratitude having risen above my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a debt of gratitude that compels me to say yes, because I so appreciate anybody inviting me to do anything. Yes, it's so you know? true. Yes. And, you know, and it's like, I can never pay back that debt of gratitude. At some point, you got to have boundaries, yeah. which are real, real difficult to do when you've just been programmed to try harder than the next guy to please as many as you can and do it as perfectly as you can. Another way of saying what your, yep. your script yeah. has been. Yeah. So tell us about your resilience, uh, um, bank account. What, what are your concepts that have sustained you, Michael? So that, that arose. So I, I retired from surgery with uh, my wife's support and I was lost for a couple of years, a house husband, you know, and that was a great experience. though because I was with my daughters and I had to learn to be present and slow down and I didn't have an agenda every day. And so that was a remarkable experience to really set me out of that high driving mode. Uh, and uh, that has ramifications down the road with my relationships, but uh, it wasn't, uh, and, and the, pro- the thing for me was the AA, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and the meetings. And I, I tried really hard at Hazelin to buy into the 12 step program. And there were aspects of it that I liked. And the meetings, you know, they were wonderful because I was around other people who had been through the same kind of hell I had. And so there was some connection. But the thing that got me uh, kind of soured on that was the kind of lack of scientific uh, approach to things. And, you know, it was built on something quite a long time ago. And there was a relentless focus on character defects and these things. And, and I just, I wanted to expand my horizons around wellness uh, because the AA program, although it served me well in the beginning, it just wasn't working for me in terms of where I wanted to go intellectually and, and emotionally. Uh, because I was reading extensively at the time, and I realized that they're not integrating any of these, you know, topics into it. And so then I, I my daughter sent me a video about gratitude and the science of gratitude, and and it was the science just blew me away. I had no idea. And you know, I, I love to tell the story. When I was at Hazel, my counselor was always badgering me. You know, keep a gratitude journal and write three things in it that you're grateful for every day. He just every day he's telling me this, and I just thought it was bullshit. I'm going to write three things down on some piece of paper and that's going to make a difference in my life. You know, I mean, I'm a surgeon. It's just, this is just too weak, you know? Well, then I saw the science and I only crying out loud. And so then I, I got some papers on it. I started reading. I came across this idea of self-compassion. I, what the hell is that? I had never even heard of such thing. And I looked up the people that were involved in that, Kristen Neff, Germer, and I just decided well, I'm going to sign up for one of these retreats and go to it. So I went to, you know, a self-compassion retreat for five days, learn how to meditate, put my hand on my heart, do love. You wimp. 
You I'm big wimp. wimp. Yeah, I have a tall. You have fallen completely. <laughs> I've fallen off the wagon. <laughs> And not the narcotic wagon, but the wagon of being a tough guy. <laughs> All you surgeons, don't you dare stop working 120 hours a week. You end up in a five-day compassion workshop. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I even liked it enough that I went back and got trained in how to teach people self-compassion. Good for I mean, you, man. Nuts. Good yeah, for so. you. Uh, but that's that old, I like getting uncomfortable because when I went in yeah. there, when I went to that retreat, there were 60 women and three other guys there. You're talking, they were about, all it out of You're talking about it takes courage. That took oh, man, a lot I, more courage than going to residency. Right? Oh, by far. I honestly, God, I almost walked out. I said, I just, I just can't do this. This is ridiculous, you know? So, but that was so eye opening. And then I, uh, the really, the big deal though, in terms of all those things was I was, I of course knew a lot of surgeons in the community and I think this is really important here, Wayne. And that is surgeons that I knew started calling me. They wanted to get together for breakfast. Mm -hmm. Now I was back in the mode of I'm damaged goods. I got nothing to tell anybody of any value, but they were calling me. And I thought they were just calling me for kind of sympathy conversations. Huh. And it turns out they're calling me. They want to get the brother for breakfast so they can talk about their stuff. All right. Because now I'm yeah. a free agent. There's nobody to worry about. I'm just in safe space. Yeah, safe space. And it didn't take me long before I realized they're just singing the same song that I was singing. It was just remarkable. And so I, you know, and there were many surgeons that were calling me, I was getting, I was having breakfast all the time. And I decided to pull a group together with these guys. And so, huh. you know, four years ago, I got a group together with them. It was very difficult because their schedules, they all got kids and stuff, but that group is meeting twice a month uh, on Saturdays for two hours. It's still going strong. And I mean, the wow. level of connection, and my ability to bring the science of this stuff to them and influence their lives has been nothing short of incredible. So, well, me, tell me a little bit about that. You work, you y'all meet virtually, and for how long? Well, we met virtually for you know during COVID, but we go and have breakfast at a at a restaurant and we talk for a couple hours, sometimes two and a half, three hours. Good for you, man. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And, it's had a big impact on our lives. And I mean, it's, uh, it replaced the group process for AA for me, you know, it was really well, in fact, you know, Mayo did, uh, published an interesting, compelling research, um, short version being, uh, just getting physicians to go out to dinner, um, every other week f over the course of a year right. or nine months, I think it was and agree. We're not just going to have it be a bit session. We're going to talk about some selected title. What brought you in the medicine? What was a win? What is a vulnerable thing you're dealing with? You want to talk about had significant uh, boost in resilience, diminished burnout, increased engagement, and and across the board, it, it, Mayo spends over a million dollars a year supporting physicians going out to dinner. But it's a no-brainer when you consider how much it costs to replace a a, a busy. A physician, much less a busy surgeon. So good for you. Very if you powerful. could, if so, to to bullet point some of the factors, if you could wave a magic wand and have your surgeon colleagues, if nothing else, man, be sure to do this stuff to keep yourself going in the right direction. What what would those things be? What are some components of your resilience model? Also, well, the resilience bank account came about through all the activities that I was doing. And, uh, and I decided uh, that I should write about it because I had an experience with my son that just so convinced me of the value of those experiences. And Tell and, us that. Well, so, you know, I, now I'm into the meditation, self-compassion, gratitude. I've got my group. 
And, you know, from my perspective, I was like, I am great. I mean, I'm feeling good. Uh, you know, I have deep connections with my children, you know, I'm doing this kind of work and stuff. Uh, but I, I realized that, you know, perhaps this is just all fantasy, you know, because I'm not working as a surgeon and, uh, you know, and, and life is good. So you got no real big stressors here. Uh, and then I got a call, my son who went to the Naval Academy, uh, he uh, bought a motorcycle after a deployment. He got in a motorcycle accident, has leg mangled up. And I had to fly out to San Diego in 2017 to uh, be with him at Na Balboa Naval Medical Center. And after 10 operations and a septic shock episode nearly killed him, he finally had to have a leg amputation. And this, this kid is, you know, he is my uh, physical animal. He boxed at the Naval Academy, lifts weights like crazy, climbs mountains. You know, some of my other kids, if they'd lost a leg, it would have just been more, okay, I just got to get in and out of the car a little more gently. But for him, it was a, psychologically a, a massive uh, problem. So, you know, we're staying in the Airbnb after a month at the hospital. I'm bringing him meals. I'm doing all this stuff, making sure his medical care is perfect. And uh, we're, and then after a couple of weeks at the Airbnb, we're going to go out to dinner for the first time. And he's out in public for the first time with his, his amputation. And, you know, I drop him off in front of the restaurant. I'm watching my precious son, you know, walk in with his dangling leg on the crutches, <laughs> struggling to get through the doors. And, uh, you know, we sit down and he just slams down a few beers in no time at all. And then I just, you know, we're, it's, there's no real conversation and I just strike up some small chat or something. And he just starts, you know, yelling in the restaurant at me and swearing at me. And I got him to settle down and got out after, you know, suffering through the silence in the restaurant. Everybody heard around us. You know, it was really an awful moment. We get out to the curb. I call an Uber and I'm standing there. He's up on the sidewalk. I'm down on the street by the curb. And I turn around, look at him, you know, and he's standing there, you know, his leg whacked off and and I mean, I'm on this emotional tightrope with this kid. I'm thinking, you know, L, Sam, uh, you know, F you, because I've been out here for six weeks taking care of you, doing all this stuff. You know, I, I would have been, I think, reasonably justified saying, you know, the hell with this. I'm going back home. You can figure this out. Yeah. Uh, the other side of me is like, you know, you're right, because I actually played a major role in pushing him to go to the Naval Academy. Mm. And if that hadn't happened, you know, maybe he'd still have his leg. But in that moment, what I was able to do that I am convinced I wouldn't have been able to do in a previous iteration of Mike Mattis is I put my arms around him, put my cheek up against his, and I said, I can't imagine how much you're suffering. Hmm. And I pulled away and his tears were flowing down his face. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know why I keep blaming you for everything. Wow. And that was the beginning of our relationship that is deep and connected to this day. Because, you know, he's, he talked to me for two hours the next day about his entire life. But the point is, the, the presence of mind, the lack of my ego being involved, my ability to see another person's suffering and separate it from my own issues. Yeah. That was a skill set. You know, and it's one thing to do it with a patient or something. That's, you know, because you're, you're six degrees of separation in a way. But with, right. with your son or a loved one, I mean, the, the enmesh, enmeshment emotionally is so profound. And I just was so stunned that I was able to do that in that moment. And that really, then I became full on convicted about the value of 
meditating to learn sure. presence of mind and compassion. Yeah, you know, you know, you you would not have been able to do that if you hadn't done the work. And you know, shit doesn't just happen. You got to no. do the work to get to the point where you can reflexively do whether it's surgery or coping in the moment uh, with hard stuff or picking yourself back up and continuing on the journey. But, you know, Wayne, you you asked that question about, you know, the things that you really tell people to do. Yeah. Your practices. Yeah. The practices, the big one. And I say this right out of the gate is boundaries. Decide what you really want to do and what you don't want to do. And I mean, this is hard, but I mean, I've talked to physicians and coaching and they, you know, I, I, I got to do this committee. I got to do this. I got, you know, they're, they're in 15,000 things and they're running with their heads cut off. And a lot of it, they don't even like doing, right. It's just what's happened and burnout. There is no question that in my opinion, that a lot of it is related to just the modern environment, phones, continuous activity. Sure. We are not, we can't sustain that. It's just not good. And so that's number one, really decide what you want to do and put boundaries around that. No, don't do crap. You don't want to do. And then the other big thing that I think is so critical is the ability to make transitions and be present with people that you care about. I mean, really present and not heading to the next thing. And what I mean by that is when you come home, you know, leave work at the door, get present when you put your hand on that doorknob, because there's a whole set of biochemical processes in the brain that are related to doing things in the here and now in arm's reach, connecting with somebody, talking, uh, petting a dog, a good meal, reading a book. Our brain thrives on that kind of stuff. It's not just dopamine pursuing the future and goals, you know, right. So you really need to focus on that. I, I read recently one of these um, swag statistics sophisticated wild ass guest statistics. I, 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 suspect, I don't know how people figure this stuff out, but supposedly, excuse me, in Western culture, we spend 46% of our waking state distracted, Yeah, you know, multitasking. Now, I don't know if that statistic is accurate, but it sure has intuitive appeal. And if you, you pay attention to how frequently, uh, Family says things like, uh, but you have to listen to me with your eyes, daddy, not just with your ears. Mm -hmm. Or um, I'll wait till you finish that deer, you know, from a spouse. You know, we we make a habit of being distracted. What are your well, I'm sorry, uh, go ahead, Mike. On that front, you know, this is so interesting because when I uh, retired, so then I became a house husband. And so I'm cooking, I'm doing all the stuff. I take over the house. But I remember being out, in the garden with my wife, cause she loves the garden. And I'd be just so antsy, you know, what am I going to do? How can I help here? You know, the, just the antsiness. And I learned, I decided I need to train myself to be present in those things. And in particular with my children, I decided that I needed to do a lot of work there. And I learned to actually really listen and be present to them. Uh, and in a way, you know, cause before I was always about like telling them how to do things and this is the way you got to do everything. And, you know, and that simple act of learning how to listen and not trying to fix everything like a surgeon yeah. likes to do yeah. that led to uh, my relationships, with my children being transformed categorically. I mean, I am closer to my children than I 
could ever have imagined in a real deep way. And it is literally because of stopping trying to fix everything, being present, caring about them as an individual and not somebody that's got to be managed. And, uh, and if, I, if I feel like I've done anything well in my life besides surgery, it's, I've become a, good, a much better father than I ever was because of this process. Good for you. And the, the super, the super uh, skill there is listening. You know, it's, it's a, a learnable um, skill, but it doesn't uh, come naturally for many of us. Yeah. If you could uh, gift people with any closing thoughts, three or four things that, if nothing else, please do these in addition to being present, uh, clarify your values, have boundaries, listen. What else would you say? What are your wellness practices, Mike? What do you make time to do? Well, I, I still exercise. I have to do it in a very different way. Uh, so I always exercise. I mean, almost every day of the week in some form or another on elliptical or, and I still lift, but now it turns out both sho- shoulders are bone on bone. So I got I just do very high reps, you know, lightweight. So I, I continue with that. Um, I meditate almost every day. I write wow. in a gratitude journal still. Uh, I just find priming the pump in the morning by getting my mind into a place of appreciation and especially for things that maybe happened yesterday or in general, I like to prime my pump with meditation and, and gratitude journaling. And those things only take 10 to 15 minutes. Well, yeah. And that's the, when you, when we reverse the, the script and you interviewed me about stuff that I've learned, we can talk about bite size, B I T E size chunks of these mm-hmm. experiences. Cause that it really, cause I, I, I can hear what some of the listeners are saying. Yeah, that's all fine and good, but I didn't go through recovery. I didn't retire. I didn't I have time. How the hell am I going to make time? Well, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time. It takes a lot of intentionality. Yeah. Some of these things take time, uh, but bite-sized chunks work well also. It's called but I can tell you, my friend, you, um, you epitomize a lot. You epitomize about getting through hard times, coming out stronger. You epitomize post-trauma growth syndrome. The majority of people who go through traumatic experiences, if you study them long-term, don't fall apart. They go stronger by becoming better mind, body, spiritually, and in relationships. And you also epitomize one of my allergies. You physicians and surgeons, I've said forever, look, y'all are smarter than 99% of people in the history of the world. You really are. And you work harder than 100% of people we study. You really do. Um, and you're more hard-headed than 150% of people yeah, we've studied. Sure. <laughs> you're great at doing anything you set your minds to. You're great at getting screwed up, and you're great at recovering. And yeah, I'm glad exactly. you recovered, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, on that note, my final thought would be, my, my view is, uh, you know, we dedicate so much effort and time to surgical residency and becoming a master surgeon, right? And- Nobody gives us uh, residency for how to live and be in the world, right? Yeah, right. It just isn't. It's just like it's supposed to just sort of happen. And you might get lucky, you might not get lucky. And so with the Resilience Bank account, my, my idea is that you can actually create your own mini residency if you want to dedicate yourself to being the best you can be. And these are the practices that lead to that process. And it's no different than, you know, training to become a certain. We should train 
to be our best selves. And what does that require? You know, so I agree. And it's a lifetime learning process, just like anything committed to, you know, whether it's being a musician or lifetime learning about pick a topic uh, much less uh, professionals across disciplines in to Gwandi's notion that we should have lifetime coaching. It doesn't have yes. to be with a formal coach necessarily, yeah. uh, but I love it. So thank you for your work. Thank you for uh, what you're doing to help your colleagues, Michael. And thank you for the honor of inviting me to be a part of this and um, my admiration, buddy, you stay the course. Thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. it. This has been the resilient surgeon a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.